Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Now, let's get started on our series. This is the first week. Here we go. The first week in a series of, of lessons that will be looking at uh, one of the books in the bio, back of the Bible called Philippians. It's what's called an epistle. An epistle means letter. And this is a letter that Paul wrote to a church, a very uncommon church, in Philippi. It is a, this is a book that unlocks the key to joyful living. This is, this is the book about an uncommon church living an uncommon life with this thing, this uncommon thing called joy. Joy is, is one of the tangent points between heaven and earth where we get to, uh, feels a terrible word, where we get to experience something that transcends our human experiences and, and, and gives us this hope for eternity because it, it, it's the thing that we, we long for. Okay, so let, before we get going too far into the book, let me tell you a little bit about this uncommon church in this place called Philippi. Philippi is a city in Greece. It's named after Alexander the Great's father. It's a military town, uh, a military outpost, and a training ground. And so people were coming in from all over to, to be part of this training, even if they were conquered, they'd be moved here to be trained to be part of the Roman guard. It, this letter to Philippi is a thank you note from Paul. Paul was imprisoned in Rome because of his faith and his boldness, and this little, little church in this little town uh, sent him various gifts, and they've been supporting him and encouraging him while he in his entire ministry. Now, because Philippi is a military colony, it is an eclectic place. If you think about Fort Hood or maybe even if you've been to San Antonio, you can see that people are from all over, or all over the world. And so they have various races and ethnic groups and uh, socioeconomic diversity, those sorts of, of things. And so they're fairly broad-minded. It's, a, it's kind of a poor town. It's a poor church. And that doesn't matter because Paul brags about their sacrificial giving to all types of people. Again, they, there's, there's no bias in their worldview. And so uh, when, when Israel, when Jews that were converted, right, to Christianity, they lost their income streams as a consequence of that, and they were impoverished. It's this little town in Philippi that raised money sacrificially and sent it to Jews, non-Greeks, non-Romans, so that they could help them make ends meet. Now, listen, the, the reason I tell you this information about them being eclectic and it's somewhat of a poor place and they're open-minded, those sorts of things, it, it's, you need to know that because of the ethnic diversity and the, and the racial diversity and the socioeconomic uh, differences that they're having, some people are slave owners, some people are slaves, is, this is ripe for disunity. It's, it's, it's a perfect situation for division and so Paul's going to come in, and he's going to see that. He's kind of feeling it might be happening soon, and he's going to come and intervene. This is his favorite church, by the way. This is his, his most cherished congregation. And he's going to make sure that they stay true to the task. Here, if you, if you look at this um, town and, and even the congregation itself, you'll see they don't have very much in common. Um, well, they have one thing in common, but that one thing is everything. That one thing is everything, and Paul's going to keep bringing them back to that one thing, that one thing they have in common, that one thing that's everything. And this, this church has tremendous potential to do great things, to continue to do great things in the ministry that God, the gospel, but he also has the potential of being disunified. And so you'll find the idea of unity in every one of the chapters. Let's stay 
we don't have much in common. Admit that, right? But you have one thing in common, but that one thing, that's everything. Now, the key to this unity, the key to the ministry continuing in this church, and the, the key to the power that you'll see is humility. You're going to see humility throughout the book because you're going to see unity in each one of the chapters. And this, it, it is this uncommon humility that's going to cause an uncommon church. And Paul's going to say, you need to, to follow an uncommon Savior. He's not like other Greek or Roman gods. He is humble. He's a humble God. So this, this humility is an example in, in, this, in, in the description of the Savior. And if we follow the example of the humility of the Savior, we'll have uncommon unity. And with that uncommon unity, we'll have an uncommon life. And with that uncommon life, we'll have uncommon joy. Then you'll taste a little bit of heaven on earth. Then you'll see, independent of circumstances and situations, you'll experience things that only angels can dream of, this thing called joy. This this. This, but the, the nut on this thing, the, the, the cog that turns everything, and the application of this book, it's gonna, it will always be humility. I want to show you how even in the very first sentence, Paul is going to model humility. And like three different reasons and ways he's going to model this. In the first sentence, Paul's coming in because it's his favorite church. He's not coming to hurt anyone. He's not going to be yelling. He's going to want people to listen and become, by being quiet. By whispering. Look what it says in verse 1 1. Here's it up on the slides. It says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. Now, grace to you and peace from God of our, and our Father and the, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's modeling humility here by first by calling himself and Timothy bondservants. And again, with a Jewish audience, they would say, oh, bondservants, and they could get maybe uh, their. Their reputation by who their slave owner was. Now, this is a Greek audience. This is a Roman audience, and they're they're not hearing any kind of of accolades. He's he's saying, "No, you understand what I mean by slave. I'm humble. I do what I'm told." Now, this isn't the only time he's called himself a bond slave. Some of you that know your Bibles know that he he calls himself that in two other books. But in those two other books, he immediately puts out his rank. He says, uh, "Paul, a bond slave." called to be an apostle, called out for the gospel. So I'm a slave, but I've got this badge. I've got a rank. And this is the only time you'll see Paul call himself a slave and never even mention his apostleship. And then finally, this is, again, this is, the only God, this is the only epistle that Paul writes, and he writes most of the epistles, mind you, that, that he addresses the deacons and the leaders, the elders at this church. So Paul's saying, you know, never mind my rank. I'm not going to bring up my title, and I'm just going to talk to everyone, and I'm submitting as a slave. I'm submitting to the leadership. I want everyone to hear this in the leadership too. You see how he's modeling that. You want, do you want your message to be heard by someone you love? Have you, have you tried humility? It, it carries. I think I, Paul will tell you, I bet, if he were here, he would tell you the truth itself can sting. You don't need to yell, and you don't need to get too passionate about it. Let the truth do the work for you. Make the message as easy to hear as possible by transporting it on this thing, humility. So Paul's off and running, doing a great example to show us how to do this. Um, and, And I want you to just remind you now, Paul, right? A thoroughbred Jew even knows his tribal history. Right, an extreme scholar in Judaism, 
a separatist in his Judaism, and then he becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, and now he's writing, quite frankly, a love letter to a Roman Greek outpost church that in, in his previous life he would have nothing to do with. And here's the thing. He has, he has almost nothing in common with any of these people. He has one thing in common with them, and that one thing is everything. And that's, that's what drives Paul, and that's why they have so much love for each other. You think through this, this one truth, that you, what makes you you, the, the individual, is pretty much uh, a, a combination of what you believe and, and the memories that you hold. Okay? The difference between you and someone else is you have different memories and you have different beliefs. And I mean, you can see this pretty easily when you start seeing those sorts of things taken away, right? If you, if you know someone that's losing their memory, you start realizing you're losing them, right? That, that identity. Sometimes when you have a friend and you're close and they change their beliefs, I mean, significant beliefs, convictions, you start realizing they've, they've changed who they are. And it's making it more difficult to love. Because here's what love is. Love is when you have beliefs and memories over here that are overlapping with someone else's beliefs and memories. And when they overlap, you say, look at all that we have in common. We don't have very much in common. We have this one thing in common. Oh, that's everything. And this, this everything is, is their relationship with, with, with God through Jesus Christ. Watch how Paul gushes over remembering the same things and believing the same things. And that's why he has such a fondness for this church. In verse uh, 3 and 4 and 5. So God says, I'm sorry, Paul says, I thank my God in all of my, rem- all the time, every time, all my remembrances views. I'm, I'm always offering my prayers with joy in every prayer for you all. In view of, here's the thing, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Because this one thing is your participation in the gospel with me. What did they share? What did they remember together? Vacations together? No, persecution together. From the first day until now, it says. This participation, this idea of participation, uh, the Greek word is helpful for us. The, the word is koinonia, and koin means common. And so sometimes the translation will be uh, the fellowship that we have in the gospel. Other translations will say what, participation, partnership. You're in this partnership with me. Look, if you read Paul even a little bit, you'll see that his single passion in life is the gospel. Loving the Christ who died for him and gave him honor and, and spreading that word around to other people. And so this group of people, the Philippines, who would have nothing else in common with him, but they have this one thing in common, and it's the glue that it bonds them together. And it happened from the first day, and it says, and until this very day. The first day. Let me tell you this story. It's a, it's a great love story. It's love at first sight. Okay, when Paul met the Philippians the first time, this is how he started a church. Okay, an entire chapter in Acts is dedicated to this. You can read it on your own, chapter 16 of the book of Acts. Paul and Silas are working their way west, and they come into Greece, and they come to Philippi, and they do what they do. They just go look for people that would like to hear about the good news that's found in Jesus Christ. They find a prayer meeting going on at this riverbank, and there's a woman there named Lydia, and she's especially tuned to what Paul is saying, and she buys it. She's, oh, yes, this is what we've all been longing for. And, and they, Lydia joins in on it. She gets baptized along with her family, and they're continuing to do ministry in Philippi. There's this, there's this young lady 
that is demon-possessed, true story, demon-possessed, and she's following Paul and Silas around and screaming at them, these people are honoring the one true God, and it's becoming annoying. And so at, one, at a moment, Paul just says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I heal you. Now, the, this, child, this, this young lady is healed of this demon, but here's the thing. Her owner, she's a slave, her owner is making money off of her. She's kind of a carnival attraction, and now he's, no one's attracted to her anymore that she's no longer possessed. And so the slave owner presses charges against Paul and Silas for, for ruining him and, and claiming to only uh, worship one true God. So, again, they come to the town square and before the officials there and the mayor, and they beat, it says they beat them severely with rods and then threw them into prison, into the inner part of the prison. While they were there, Paul and Silas are, are, are singing hymns and praying. It says the other prisoners are listening in on this. There's not a lot of prisoners like Paul and Silas. Joy, independent of circumstances. Well, midnight comes and an earthquake, a severe earthquake, it says, rattles the, the prison so much so that the, the, the doors come off their hinges and swing open. And it is clearly a miracle because the ankle uh, chains come off them as well. The guard wakes up and realizes what's happened and, and is assuming that people have escaped and it would cost for shame, right? He's going to take his own life, do the honorable thing. He draws his sword to take his own life and Paul runs out. No, 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 no. We haven't left yet. This is how you start a church, by the way. If some of you want to start a church. <laughs> no, no, we haven't left yet. And the jailer says, who are you? And how do I get what you have? He says, what must I do to be saved? And he tells him, you believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. So the jailer takes him to his house, cleans his wounds. He tells his whole family about Jesus. Everybody gets baptized. They have this great big banquet together at the prison warden's house. Then they kind of have to go back to the prison so it looks like they were still there in the morning. The mayor sends over, you know, a messenger and says, okay, look, Paul and Silas, you guys can like sneak out in the early morning and we'll just let this whole thing bygones be bygones. Paul says, no, we're not going anywhere. And he tells the mayor this, you had me tried and beaten and imprisoned without a trial and I'm a Roman citizen, which puts you in a whole lot of trouble. And the mayor said, Hang out all you want. Do good times. And so they went to Lydia's house after this, and they had a big party together. And then he went on. That's the first day. That's why he loves these people. We went through suffering together. We had miracles together. We, we celebrated. The first day, we didn't have much in common. We had that one thing in common, but the one thing was everything. And it still is until now, it says. And all that time after he left, they've been sending him regular assistance and support. His poor church continuously and consistently gives sacrificially to this, con this collective partnership ministry that they have. Here's a quick application for this section. Okay, Put this on your bucket list. You have to do this before you die. You really do. When you travel, go on a mission trip to some place that doesn't speak English and experience this. Or if you just travel on vacation and you go to a country that doesn't speak English, would you find an honest-to-goodness, fired-up, Bible-teaching, spirit-led church and go there? You'll black out during the sermon because you won't understand, but the worship, friends, it's, it's amazing. Because they'll be singing songs you know. You'll know the tunes, but they'll be singing it in this foreign language, and you'll say, 
I have nothing in common. Wait, I have one thing in common with these people, and that one thing is everything. We are praising the same God. We have suffered in various ways together. Please consider, you know, find some little basement in China and listen. Listen as they sing or a cathedral in Russia or somebody's backyard in Mexico and listen to them sing old hymns or, or you know, current worship songs and you'll just, you'll, you'll experience this. You have to experience this one thing. We have, as brothers and sisters in Christ, there's no race, there's no ethnics, right? Ethic, ethnicity, right? There's no economics. We're just family. Good stuff. He talks about their past. He talks about the present. Now he's going to talk about their future because of their consistency and they're, they're proving that they're the real thing. He says this in verse 6. He says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. There's that word perfect, if you were here last week. Mature, complete. He says this, God is going to get you there. We've been through a lot together. We're doing some great stuff now. But I want, here's, I love this. This is a promise from Paul, from God. He's saying, you know what? Look what you've shown. I want you to know this. That what God starts, he finishes. And you, you and I, we need to be encouraged by this. Because if we feel um, tired, right? You just grow weary of the, of the intoxication of your sinful bent, right? Just always, just this continual pettiness or arrogance or vanity or addiction to greed and comfort, those sorts of things, right? He says, listen, listen, listen. You keep living this life that's humble, that's teachable, and that God will take care of this until the day it's complete. He's going to bring you to perfection. He's going to make you complete. He's going to total you out. It'll work. So he's giving them something, right? He's giving them something to live for. That, and, and, and their hope, of course, is in the Lord, right? Okay, watch this. I'm, we're going to spend a little bit of time here on verse 7 and 8 because I want you to listen again for his tenderness and concern for them. And I want you to see, again, this, this, how this uncommon church is viewed in the life of Paul. Look at verse 7 and 8. For it is only right for me to feel this way, this affection, right, this love for you. It is only right for me to feel this way about uh, you all because I have you in my heart, tenderness in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness. For God is my, I swear to God, for God is my witness how I long for you with all the affection that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so, do you, there's the word again, partakers, right? They don't have very much in common. They have one thing in common, that one thing is everything. That partakers, this one is a form of the word koinonia. The, the word coin is in there again, which means common, that one thing they have in common. And, but he's saying this. He's talking about his current situation. You are partakers with me right now in the ministry. Look, there's about 750 miles between Philippi, Greece, and Rome. That's three days travel by foot. You tell me, how are they partakers in this? How are they partners? How do they even... <laughs> Paul's saying like we're sharing a prison cell together. It's because they're investing in his ministry. It's because they, they have his heart, and he has their heart. They have an affection together. And you can see that because they are, it says, in their defense and their confirmation of the gospel. In other words, they're associating with Paul. Even now that he's in prison, he's st- I'm with him. 
I don't care if it's shameful or not. I don't care if it's an embarrassment to anyone else. We're with him. He's with us. We're, here's what you need to learn from this section right here, that ministry is a team. There's, it, it, it is a, we are all working together. One scholar put it this way. He said, Philippians is the most important book in the theology of stewardship and giving. Philippians is the most important book on the theology of stewardship and giving. Because what this passage says here, and more importantly, what it means, is the the relationship between Paul and his benefactors, right, and the people giving to him and receiving from him from a distance, they're together in this. Here's what this is saying to us, that we're in ministry together and everyone should play their part. We are all in this together and we should all play our part. You see this in other aspects of, of, of life that requires us to succeed, right? Uh, in, in World War II, here's an interesting statistic. In World War II, for every uh, boot that was on the ground, for every infantry that was actually in combat, there were four soldiers that were in a supporting role. By Afghanistan, there were seven support soldiers for every person that was on, on the field, in the line of fire, and it had to do, having to do with, you know, the evolution of war and technology and those sorts of things. But, and so, it, listen, if Paul were the infantryman, admittedly, he would say, oh, yeah, I'm out there. You bet. But, listen, I can't succeed. This is a team sport, and everybody has to play their part because I need, I need my food, and I, I need clothing, and I need information. I need ammunition, all these sorts of things. And Paul is receiving this from the Philippian church, and he's saying, you know, as God is, I, as God is my witness, I want to, I want to, I want to hug you with all the affection that I have in Jesus Christ for making this work. We are winning. You guys saw the movie The Martian. You maybe you saw a trailer for it. I mean, look, think of the, think of this. I'm going to tell you how it ends. Okay, brace yourself. But yeah, I mean, it's the classic story of Matt Damon. He's stranded somewhere, right? So he's on Mars. But the reason I bring this up is there are thousands of people, if you watch the movie, there are thousands of people trying to rescue one person. There are very few astronauts. There are more than two, four, 10,000 engineers, right, and mathematicians and statisticians, all these people involved for one person. And one of the scenes in the movie is when, when something happens right, everybody behind, just sitting behind their monitors, everybody stands up and cheers, yeah. And don't you think Matt Damon would say this? He says, as God is my witness, I'm coming back there and I'm going to hug every one of you because I needed every one of you to, to be part of the team and I needed everybody to play their part because they're connected. This isn't, this, listen, this is not a letter you might have received from a missionary saying you're part, you're part of the team. This is Paul speaking for God, trying to tell you, no, really, everybody plays a part. When, when I was in uh, graduate school, I didn't have any money, in, but I was going to go to seminary. And so I, w- I lived in some strange places. I, I lived in the car a little bit and lived on this guy's back porch for a while. I lived with a 93-year-old lady. Didn't bug me. I can sleep anywhere and don't have to eat very much. And so I was telling this to a friend back home. And he said, well, what does bug you? you know? I said, here's the thing. I never know if I'm going to have gas money to get to school. And I've already paid for school, and I don't want to miss a single class. But I just sometimes, you know, I coast down the hill, and that's dangerous. But I, I don't, I just don't know what, I don't know. So, but you know what? That's, you know, I signed on for this, no hard feelings. 
The guy looked at me at lunch. He reaches back, pulls out of his wallet an Exxon gas credit card and says, is this going to be okay? See, he got, he heard me. He got inside what was going on. The next thing you know, he's going to seminary with me. We're in this together. You see? And he understood that. So here's, here's the application here. You have to believe this to be true. This is the most important book on the theology of stewardship and giving. That it is a team sport. And when, to make this place work, everybody has to play. You need to see how right? The people helping you park your cars in the children's ministry, helping parents kind of take a breath and, and listen, people working the coffee bar, the volunteers making you human, right? <laughs> oh, we thank them, don't we? Thank you, coffee bar people. You're giving here. Life care, Austin, life care, perfect example. I, I don't know what the first, I don't know how to counsel. I'm going to wreck things in there. You know, they don't even want me in there with a hammer, you know, driving nails for them but they could use my giving, and I want to give towards them. When you give to grace, you're part of this team. That's part one. Part two is everyone must play their part. Everyone must play their part. Are you part? You know, if we're a band of brothers, if we're a platoon, are you the weak guy that's like, oh, man, we're only as strong as the weakest team member? Are you the weak team member? Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't be like those other churches. I never know if they're going to show up or not. Be like the Philippian church, right? It's a team and you have to, everyone must play their part. That's the meat of this one. Now, because of our lack of time, I, I, unfortunately, we can't spend time with his prayer. Watch how he does an uncommon prayer here. He, look how he prays. By the way, this is how you pray for people you love. You just use this as an outline. This is how you pray for people you love. And, and look, look, look at his ambitions for them. This is nine through 11. It'll finish out our time together. So verse 9 says, and this I pray, that your love, right, would abound more and more. But how? What kind of love? But in real knowledge and discernment. Why? So that you could approve the things that are excellent. Why is that? In order that you would be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Now, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Christ Jesus, to what end? It's always to this end, to the glory and the praise of God. What's he praying for? He's praying that their love would abound more and more, but not any love, not ooey-gooey, mushy-feely love, but with discernment, with knowledge and discernment. Which, well, actually, it says real knowledge, epigenosis, real knowledge. So he, he wants us to love intelligently because it, this book is committed to unity, but not unity at any cost. And so he, he wants discernment so that, what does he say? That you may approve of the things that are excellent. In the vocabulary of this church, we would say that you would understand that you would love each other and understand what is an opinion and have discernment to what is a belief and what is a conviction. Because these opinions, we're going to just love each other with the you know, beliefs we're going to hold on loosely, some of them, and then our convictions. This is what we part ways for. This is what defines us, right? It's our beliefs and our memories. And these convictions, he'll say later on, this, this is not worth having union for. One writer put it this way poetically. He said, let love fill to the brim, but not over, but not over the brim. He wants us to love intelligently with discernment. That's a great prayer. And then later, I want, I want you to spend some time on this. He said, so that you would, in order that you would be sincere and blameless. So you could live a life confidently making ethical decisions, 
and value decisions and be sincere. It's a great word. The Greek word for sincere, two words together, sun test. Sun test. Sincere means sun test. And it comes from uh, the marketplace. It, what, what would happen in ceramics, they would make uh, clay pots, right? And, and the best way to make a great quality clay pot would be get refined clay, pure clay, and then uh, fire it slowly. And then you'd get a, a great pot. Now, the problem with that is uh, really good clay is expensive and slow. We don't have time for that. And so what most vendors would do is they'd get corrupt clay that had impurities in it, and they would fire it fast, and it would crack the pots. And so what do you do if you want to sell a, a, a vase that has cracks in it? Well, here's what you do. You fill the cracks up with wax, and then you crush it all together. You, know, you smash it together, glue it with wax, and then you paint over it, and it looks, looks like there's nothing wrong with it. And so a shrewd buyer, you're not, you know, you're not the new guy. You would take a, a clay pot and say, wow, this looks great. How much does it cost? Is it, is it sincere? Oh, sure. Well, we'll see. We'll take it and give it a sun test. And we'd go outside and hold it up to the bright you know, Middle Eastern sun, and you could see whether it had wax in it. It would be insincere. It would be flawed. It wouldn't be real, right? It wouldn't be the real thing. As a matter of fact, our, Latin, our word sincere comes from the Latin word, without wax. So Paul is saying, look, love overflowing with intelligence in thinking love so that you would show yourself to be the real thing out there in the market, you know, out there where it really counts. So, and what is the sun test, right? Persecutions, injustice, difficulties, sufferings, not just words, not just doctrine. Look, look at you worshiping. Good for you. No, no, no. Sun tested to be sincere. That's what Paul hopes for us. That's what he prays for us. Here's the, here's the, Matt, here's the real reason I, I love this book and I want to study it together with you guys. Because when I look at this book, I think it reminds me of this church. It, real, it does. Uh, I've studied uh, the epistles and I'm, when I think of grace, I think that this would be, this letter to the Philippians would be the, I think this is what Paul would write us. We're eclectic. We don't have, a lot of us don't have much in common. We'd have one thing in common, and that one thing is everything, and that one thing is Christ and the supremacy of Christ. We, we're, this is an uncommon church, and here's what I'd like us to do. This is how you study an epistle as opposed to other styles or genres of literature in the Bible. You look at the individual words. I've hoped to model that today, the ones that, that make a difference, and, then, and, I, and you, try to mem- you try to get inside the writer's head, and you do that by reading it over and over again or listening to it over and over again. So here's the challenge, application for the series. Could you, could you read it four times a week as we go through it? Read Philippians, maybe in two different, four different translations, four times a week. It'll get wearisome in the middle, but then you'll, something will happen to you and you'll start getting into the mind of Paul and then you'll start hearing it. But here's what I want you to do though. Okay, while you're listening, while you're reading, I want you to hear that it's written to you. I want you to feel the sentimentality that Paul has here. He is consistently positive in this book. He is extremely uh, personal, like no other, no other book. And he, he's filled with this joyful spirit towards this church because of, his, because of his great affection, because of their memories together and their shared beliefs. But listen for this, because this is the key to the book. All right? The key to the application of the book is humility. The key to the book itself is Jesus Christ before, in the middle, at the end. 
The book has 104 verses. 51 of the verses have Jesus' name in it specifically because this is what would be a Christological-centered epistle. This is a Christ-centered epistle. We're going to learn how to live and how to, how to think in this book. In chapter 1, we're going to find out through Christ, right, the purpose of life. It, to live is for Christ, to die is gain, he says. Chapter 2, it's, it's all about Jesus again. As an example, do this the way Jesus acted humbly. It's the pattern of life. Chapter 3, it's all about Jesus being our goal. He says, I press on for the prize. Chapter 4, chapter 4 is about the power that we get in Christ. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. So I want you to be reading as a congregation. Let's do this. You know, we're the Philippian church. Come on. Let's do this, Grace. Let's read through this four times a week. Let's listen for our names being called here. Let's listen to how we should learn how, how to be humble and how Jesus Christ at the center of all things can make that happen. Okay? It'll be an adventure for all of us, I think. Okay, don't miss. Don't miss. Let me pray for us, Grace, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to uh, plagiarize. I'm going to pray Paul's prayer for Grace because I think he prayed it for us. Let's pray to that end. He says this. Paul says, hey, I pray for you, Grace that your love would abound still more and more in real knowledge, mind you, and all discernment so that you would approve the things that are most excellent, that you would know the difference between an opinion and a belief and a conviction. And you'd grant grace as much as you can and you'd know when to leave when it's time. Why? Well, in order that you would be sincere and blameless all the way until judgment day. Now, you've been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. And so you live your life to the glory and the praise of our God and Father. Lord Jesus, make this true in this congregation. Make us an uncommon church. Keep us an uncommon church where humility and love and wisdom are constantly pushed and enjoyed. That joy might be experienced by all those who attend here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.